Are you interested in making your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. You guys can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And in fact, I'm using Anchor and I love it. If you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody, this is Heidi St. John. Thanks for joining me today at my little corner of the internet. Today is Monday, August 26th. This is episode number 810. And normally I do Mailbox Monday, but I have a really special guest with me today. My friend Andrew Pudawa is here, and we're going to talk about education and how to make it fun again. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. So thanks, everybody, for hanging out with me in Lee's Summit at Abundant Life Church. I had a great time there with you. It is so amazing to see the Holy Spirit at work, and he is definitely at work in Kansas City and particularly at Abundant Life. If you're anywhere near Lee Summit, Missouri, I just want to encourage you, get on over to Abundant Life Church. Pastor Phil Hopper is doing an amazing job there, and those guys are difference makers. They are definitely off the bench. I want to let you know that I will be in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Virginia, which is fast approaching on September the 14th. Tickets are on sale right now for that event. And uh, this is my women's conference, Faith That Speaks. This will be the last time I do the theme, Miracle Worker, The Life-Changing Power of Following Jesus. So you are not going to want to miss it. And then on October the 12th, I will be in Vancouver, Washington. Woo, woo, shout out for my people. Early bird tickets are going to end next Monday, September 2nd. So now's a good time to hop on over and get your tickets for that event. Many of you are already familiar with my friend Andrew. Andrew is the founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, but he has also become a very good friend of mine. And we had such a great time talking that I'm going to go ahead and split this particular interview into two interviews. The first one will air today and the next one will air on Friday. I know you guys are going to enjoy listening to part one of my interview with Andrew Pudua. We are so excited about what the Lord is doing here at the podcast. It really is my heart to bring people on the show who are going to be an encouragement to you and kind of let you feel a little bit lighter when you leave listening than when you came in. And I know that that's going to be the case today. Uh, Andrew Pudawa has become a good friend of mine over the years. I cannot wait to see him out on the conference circuit. He is the founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, better known as IEW. And he's also a father of seven. He travels and speaks around the world and talks about issues that are related to teaching and writing thinking, spelling, music. Uh, there, there is no end to what this guy can talk about. I know because I've had dinner with him several times. He's a delight. Andrew Pudua, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you, Heidi, as always. As always, it's so much fun to have you on the show. I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like we get to see each other quite as much as we used to. I'd like to know what do people say? Because when people meet me, sometimes, especially after they hear me on the show, they'll say, oh, I didn't think you would be this way in person. Does anybody ever say that to you? What kinds of Actually, things do people say to you? The most common thing I hear is, you're taller than I thought you were. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And you have no way of gauging when, when someone was, even someone's watching you on video, they really have no, you are tall. 
You are well, a tall the dude. Funny, the funny thing was, Heidi, when we made the first set of videos back in 2000, 2001, the cameras were elevated three feet so they could shoot over the heads of the audience and get a better picture of me. Nice. The problem is, if you're watching the video, it's as though you are about three feet taller than you actually are, <laughs> or I'm a few feet shorter than I actually am, because the, the mind can can do that. It can look at an angle of a face and calculate height. And so people are always saying, wow, you're taller than I thought. <laughs> Unfortunately, these days, some people are saying, especially kids, you're looking older too. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but better that that's than so, dead, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we get we reach a point where we're like, yes, well, this is better than being dead. Okay, good. <laughs> so, Andrew, you are working, uh, you just finished a book, however imperfectly, lessons learned from 30 years of teaching. And I always tell people, one does not simply sit down to write a book. There has to be something that that is burning inside of you that you want to get out. And uh, I'm fascinated by this because you ha you are a teacher. And I loved that when you were writing about this, you said that it was hard to say when you began thinking of yourself that way. Why did you say that? Well, mainly because, you know, you kind of move from 20s and ed end of education and training into mm -hmm. the professional world. And for me, it was it was kind of an overlap type of situation. So... I was teaching, but I was still, you know, working for an organization that I was learning a great deal and getting mentored. But I figured that it was approximately uh, 1987, when I was 27 years old, that I actually started to be independent of mm -hmm. some other organization or authority in terms of my teaching. So that's that's what I labeled it. And I wrote this book in, uh, I finished all of the essays in it in 2018. But um, unlike you, Heidi, who can actually sit down and write a book, uh, it took me 20 <laughs> years to put this one together. <laughs> and uh, you're, I you're too busy founding IEW and other things like that. Well, maybe, or maybe I just don't like writing very much. Shh. <laughs> 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 But uh, I did, uh, in 2018, I, I thought, you know, I've written some pretty good little articles here and there over the past couple decades. Um, maybe we should find the best ones and put them together in a little book and give it away as a freebie for convention purchases in 2018. So um, I put my team on looking at the articles, thinking, oh, maybe there's a couple dozen that are worth reading. And they went through them all and decided that pretty much every one of them needed to be in this book. So oh. it's about four <laughs> times longer than I expected it would be at uh, 337 pages. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to have done it. And if I live another 20 years, maybe I'll write one more book. Well, you'll have another book in you, that's for sure. I think it's fascinating talking to people who have been teaching for a while. You know, I didn't consider myself a teacher. I do now. I love to teach. I teach all over the country, as you know. But I, one of the things I love to do is talk to homeschool parents. And you really addressed a lot of the angst that I felt when I started homeschooling in your book. And one of the points you were making, and I loved this, I think it's going to set a lot of uh, moms free today who are listening to this. You said. It's hard not to do to your children 
what was done to you. And I was just like, preach it. Amen. Right. Because most of us went to school. I did. I went to a, I went to a private Christian school. My husband went to a public school and we brought our experience of education into our own educating of our children. And I think that's pretty common. And you address that and you kind of talk about how to kind of move away from that. So when you said, I'm going to address this question, uh, what made you think, I'm, this is going to be at the top of my list? Well, probably the the thing that kind of woke me up a little bit, and this happened very early on, um, probably 1989, 90, uh, someone, I think it was one of my violin students' parents, gave me a book by John Taylor Gatto entitled Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education. And uh, Gatto was a New York State Teacher of the Year, New York City Teacher of the Year, taught eighth grade English in Brooklyn for a long time, a couple decades. And uh, he wrote this book basically saying the whole system as it exists is exactly the opposite of what children need. It was designed by people with an agenda. It was created specifically to limit what we would uh, learn and the experiences we could have so that Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be smart and we would be nice, controllable, obedient, predictable, factory workers, voters, and consumers. And I I read this book and I just thought, yes, I love it. This totally explains why I am so stupid. (laughs) Because I, I had hit this age around 30 where I thought, you know, I'm old, I'm grown up, I've got kids, I've been to different schools, you know, I I read, but I should have arrived by now. Yeah, exactly. I still feel so dumb. And uh, when I read Gatto's book, I thought, well, maybe it isn't entirely my fault. Possibly something had to do with the system I came through. And mm-hmm. so that kind of you know, got me on this questioning trail of if I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me, what could I do differently? And uh, you know, that led me first into homeschooling and then ultimately into um, a more kind of classical education approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking and say, well, what, what were people doing to educate children well? before this modern system that Gatto describes so clearly uh, came along. And so that mm-hmm. became kind of the, the course for my wife and for me um, to figure it all out. Yeah. And th- I get uh, letters from moms every single week here at the show. And lately I've been getting the 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 kinds of letters I always get in August, which is the mom who is going, oh, my goodness, This isn't what we wanted for our kids. Their kids are in a regular school system. Most of them are still in public school. And they've been listening to my podcast and I talk about homeschooling. But oftentimes a mom will uh, write to me and she'll say, I don't know how to talk to my husband. And I'm like, oh, good. This will be a great question for Andrew. Uh, I don't know how to talk to my husband. He's not totally convinced that homeschooling works because he went to a school just like I did. He went to public school and he, he figures I'm doing okay. Why would we mess with that? And this mom is telling me, man, I've been looking into different ways of educating my children and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, we've been doing it backward. There's a better way to do it. How can, can you bring some encouragement to that mom who is wondering how can she talk to her husband 
and sort of open up this discussion about education, how it's been done for all these many years in the United States. I mean, particularly Western civilization, but for the purposes of this conversation here in the U.S., and where you see that going and what options might be available that these uh, that these women can talk with their husbands about. Well, that's such an important thing because, you know, a husband and wife, a mom and a dad absolutely have to be sharing the vision of what they're doing. Yes. Otherwise, it's you're setting yourself for worse difficulty and strife. Yep. Um, I, it was funny. I was in, uh, I think it was Fort Worth. This guy came up to me, looked very dour. He came up after my first talk and he goes, well, I haven't drank the Kool-Aid yet. I said, <laughs> about what? And he goes, well, my wife homeschools our children, but I just don't get it. Like, you know, I hate my job. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't know what to do with my life, except I just have to keep doing this job I hate. And I guess, mm. you know, I'm afraid if I pull my kids from school, you know, they won't be able to get, get a, a job, job that they hate. That they hate. I mean, that was honestly <laughs> where he was at. And um, I sat down and talked to him for a good hour and a half. And his wife was there. We had a great conversation. Mostly I just tried to ask him questions. And I think, you know, his problem was his vision was just very, very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of what I tried to do was say, you know, look at, at so many of the possibilities in the world. Yes, you may be locked into your job for one reason or another, but your kids aren't yet. And mm -hmm. um, what in an ideal world, what would you like to see? And just trying to help him imagine something mm. different. And uh, by the end of the weekend, uh, he was my new best friend, and he emailed <laughs> me back, and I gave him suggestions, what books to read to his kids, and how to get involved. So I do think that there is power uh, in the type of thing we do. Uh, we go out, we talk to people, we write stuff, people read it. This, the question is, how can a mom kind of strategically get some of that stuff uh, mm -hmm. into her husband's awareness? And mm -hmm. maybe it's maybe it's getting a conference talk. Uh, I'm sure mm -hmm. you could recommend many. I could. They're still mm -hmm. available. You don't have to buy them all at conferences. You've got uh, a different podcast. I've got audio downloads, all sorts of them. And maybe mm -hmm. just, you know, slip it onto his phone or give him a CD to listen to in the car mm -hmm. and uh, do it a little surreptitiously and say, hey, this is this might be interesting. Um, if you listen to it, let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. um, no, you that's know, I, great. I remember, you know, getting Gatto's book and I just started reading it out loud to my wife while she was, you know, cooking dinner or we were sitting around. And uh, I was so excited about it. Um, and she was she almost came into into this world that we were trying to get into doubly handicapped because not only did she go to public schools for her whole childhood, she has a degree in elementary education from a public yeah. university. Yeah. So that's even more kind of, you know, programming and, and I'd say brainwashing, at least Gatto would say mm -hmm. brainwashing is, uh, mm -hmm. and he this would is know what school is. <laughs> he would yeah. know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, some audios, maybe read out loud, some selected passages from a book that just helps to expand the vision 
of of the couple together on mm-hmm. what are the possibilities, what are the options. The other thing I'd point out, and I'm sure you've mentioned this, schools today, unfortunately, are actually much more dangerous, absolutely, and, and less academically. Uh, there's less academic opportunity than there was yeah. even 20 years ago yeah, when yeah. some of you know our younger moms were still in school. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd say it, we've it, gone from academics to activism in the schools. I mean, to me, when I look at what's happening in the public schools today, I see much more activism and social engineering than I see emphasis on academia. Yeah, there's a guy, and I don't know if you ever met him. His name is Duke Pesta. He was just on my had, show. Oh, great. Well, then, you know, all, oh, he, he's a, he's an, a grenade waiting to go off. Oh, and, man. Uh, I listened to his uh, Freedom Project uh, podcast, the Dr. Duke show. And that's yep. what he does. He, he shows yep. you the good, the bad, the ugly, and the incredibly, the unbelievably ugly. And, uh, you know, I think his goal is to also help expand the vision. I mean, when you think about it, it, you, it's not even easy for a person to walk into a public school and stay there and say, watch a classroom for half an hour. Mm-hmm. You, you can't get any firsthand experience to know what's going on without really challenging the whole system. And they don't like that. No. So, and, and you know, I'll be the first to admit, as would you, homeschooling is not the answer for every family and every mom. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what I think, one thing, um, Scott Somerville, who's one of the uh, founding attorneys of the HSLDA long, long ago, we were having a conversation once, and he said, well, look, let's face it, every parent homeschools. That's it's right. just some some do it full time. You know, y- you can't mm-hmm. completely abdicate from the education of your children. You're going to have to drill them on math facts. You're going to have to help them with their spelling words. You're going to have to help them write their papers and study for their social studies test. You know, you're going to be involved if you're going to help them be successful academically at all. So why not look for the better ways to do that? Yeah. And you noticed uh, when you were saying it's really hard not to do to your children what was done to you, you talked about the Suzuki method because you had Suzuki training. And I thought that was really interesting because it what you're doing is exactly what you've been explaining. This mom should help her husband do. And that was you had your your um your horizons were really expanded on what education could look like not what it did look like but what it could look like uh, what is it that you learned from Suzuki that kind of changed uh helped facilitate a paradigm shift with you with regard to education oh the man was he, he was designated a national living treasure by the nation of Japan and and that's truly. I'm pretty what he sure was. that's he, what the homeschool community's done for you, Andrew. I think. Oh no 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 no. no. Yeah yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Suzuki was he was one of these truly once in a century great visionary educators. I mean, he's right up there with Charlotte Mason, Maria Montessori, hmm. you know, and Plato in my view. I mean, maybe that's a stretch for some people, but <laughs> Suzuki had this incredible belief, just more than a belief, just a certainty that he oozed out of himself. It was contagious. And that was that any child can learn anything if Mm. the method and the environment and the teacher and the conditions are all correct. And he didn't set out to fill the world with 
hundreds of thousands of tiny violinists. His whole mission was to use the violin, which is a very difficult thing to learn to do, mm-hmm. and prove that any child could learn to play the violin if the right method and and environment were available to that child. Mm-hmm. He also pointed out that you could make Beethoven tone deaf if you put him in the wrong environment. So right. he was very, very key on both uh, environment and method of instruction. And so that really did, uh, you know, as a young adult, cause me to look at you know, education a little different. But then mm-hmm. every time I would, you know, come up against, so well, what should we do with this child? Oh, he's in second grade. She's in second grade. So we have to get a little pile of books with a grade two on the cover and be sure we don't fall behind. And then it's right. all about this crazy mechanics of that. There goes the joy. Uh, then, yeah. The other thing that was profound for me was I actually went straight from three years in Japan to three years in uh, Philadelphia at the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential, where I learned about um brain injured children and helping diagnose and write programs and teach programs of treatment for children, some of whom were, you know, very severely hurt, you know, uh, paralyzed or spastic or extremely autistic or, you know, Down syndrome. And then other kids who were, you know, had such mild issues, you might not have known it if you didn't live with them. Mm-hmm. And the whole spectrum in between. And one of the things Glenn Doman said several times, he was the founder of the institutes there. And he said these in, in lectures, and I heard him say it again and again. And I've contemplated my whole life. He said, every child is brain injured. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of location and degree. So mm-hmm. on one end of a spectrum, you have neurologically flawless. And on the other end of a spectrum, you have neurologically, you know, you have comatose right? Mm -hmm. You're either perfect or you're dead or you're somewhere in between. And all of us are in between. We're all brain injured. Well, we're all neurologically flawed. And and so are the children. They they come in with different neurologies. And that's one of the points. I think that's um, point number three in my uh, essay, however imperfectly, is all children are different. Mm -hmm. And if you understand this, it changes the whole world. Mm-hmm. But the whole but the whole education world pretends that no, if you're born between this month and this month, then you're this gonna the do everything. You. Yeah, you're gonna do everything the same way as everybody else who's approximately the same age, you know, according to the same schedule to get the same results. And then when it doesn't work, the whole system becomes relatively dysfunctional. And then, you know, the parents who, who see it, they wanna, you know, step in and say stop, this is not how my children child will learn this, or mm-hmm. stop, he, he's not ready, or hey, he's bored to death. What, what, mm-hmm. Can't you help him not be bored? Because everybody's different. And when you age segregate children institutionally, I would agree, I would, I would argue, it's one of the most disordered and disordering things that you can do, mm-hmm. because it creates this completely fake concept that they're yep. all equal neurologically, intellectually, academically, motivationally, emotionally, etc. Yeah, and you noticed that Suzuki pointed that out right first to you. He he was doing he was teaching amazingly well without age segregation, right? Not not using report cards, not giving grades, not teaching under compulsion and the net result was that was that children were learning with joy because all of a sudden they're he's uh he's basically essentially what I always tell parents is he's learning how to fold them where they're bent 
rather than saying, mm-hmm. here is where we're going to fold you. Sorry, you're not bent there. We're going to fold against the bend. And then we wonder why our kids are struggling. Yeah, you know, I, I've said this. I think the whole world of education, would, the whole world in general, would be a better world if all teachers were music teachers first. Because music teachers, like you said, you know, don't worry about, you know, how when you start. You can start playing the violin at four or eight or fourteen or forty-four. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. What matters is that you start. It doesn't matter how fast is your progress. You can take, you know, six months or two years to get through book one. It, mm-hmm. The only thing that matters is that you're making progress. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter you know, where you are in relationship to another student. I mean, I have never in my life thought, well, this student is eight years old and that student is eight years old, but that student is, you know, in the fourth piece in book two, and this student is still on the next to last piece in book one, therefore he's behind. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense to a music teacher. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. lastly, as you said, I've never given grades. I don't think there's any possible benefit that you get from this, you know, giving of grades based on comparing kids with some abstract standard or, or worse with each other. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so if, if teachers could be free of all that, they could see their children, I think, as more unique individuals. But then what do you do when you've got 27 of them all the same age in one room? Right, you, right. It's the, kind of like Lord of the Flies. To, yeah, the whole <laughs> system has to change itself. And I just don't know how how that would happen. Uh, But I do know more and more parents are coming into alternative education, whether it be homeschool or hybrid school or a charter school situation, or looking at something very radical like uh, Waldorf from Montessori saying, Mm -hmm. I need my child to get out of that so he or she can, you know, get the individualized instruction they need or or just flourish and and be happy, be free. Yeah. Yeah. And that really, that was the word I was just writing down as you were talking. I literally just wrote the word flourish down because that's what every parent wants for their children. We want our children to flourish. And yet for those of us, including myself, that grew up in a standardized system of education in a regular school, uh, it's very, very hard because it's so ingrained in us. Thanks for tuning in today. As always, I will be linking back to all things related to my guest today. You can find out more about Andrew at IEW.com. And if you're driving or you're doing your laundry or heaven forbid you're taking a shower right now, no need to rush. We have these notes transcribed for you and the links that we talk about will also be there in the show notes, HeidiStJohn.com forward slash podcast. I'm going to come back on Wednesday and we're going to wrap up our study at MomStrong International and then part two of Andrew's interview will air on Friday. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you back here on Wednesday. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.